Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So, come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And don't be afraid of the leaping sparks as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the wisdom of... Coming up today, Voltaire's Candide. God, you really, you really had me going this week. Uh, we have so many projects going on, many irons in the fire. Some of them are even based in reality. So sometimes it's hard to keep them all, keep them all straight in my head. So you sent me an electronic mail this week saying that you'd gotten an idea for our supervillain in our new Rational Man pitch. A man that was struck by a randomly flung lightning bolt from Zeus himself. He was born in and of chaos, and he dubs himself Voltaire. Yeah, not bad, right? Rational man versus the electric Voltaire. Our pitches are getting better every week, that's for sure. But um, enough of the mindless tosh. So first, and as usual, a brief summary. So, Candide is a satirical novel written by Voltaire, a French writer and a philosopher of the Age of Enlightenment. It was published in 1759, and it was Voltaire's most famous work. The story is about an innocent young man, Candide, and his tutor, Dr. Pangloss, and their travels and misfortunes in a mad and evil world. Candide is considered one of the most influential books ever written. Within the cartoon character parameters that I've uh, that I've presented myself, you know, how I've represented myself on this podcast, I've kind of presented myself as uh, being a big fan of certain things. But let it not be said that I don't also hate things. One thing that I truly hate is the kind of everything happens for a reason strain of thought, especially when it comes to to suffering providing benefit. I'm not thinking about that concept in general. I know there's value there. I'm thinking about it in the way that many people think about it, that other people should suffer to teach me a lesson. Like, you see that horribly addicted homeless guy who has to live in his own filth, and I say, well, you know, don't worry. His suffering, it's not in vain. 
it's given me a greater appreciation of my speedboat. Portions of Africa going through starvation under the thumb of a crazed warlord? Well, that sure taught me to appreciate my Big Mac combo, even though that stupid kid forgot to give me extra pickles. In a similar category, I wonder about the, you know, the kind of everything is for the best. Those kind of people, like the ones that say, like, we should have no regrets. That kind of way of thinking. People say this all the time, that you really shouldn't have regrets because everything you've experienced has made you the person you are. It's led you to the place where you're at. Well, if that's true, I'm currently stuffed into some windowless attic at an ungodly early hour on a Sunday morning looking at your mug. So pardon me if I do have a few regrets. Is this really all for the best? Your only regret is looking at my mug? Come on, you have way more regrets than that. I mean, how about the fact that you have the signature of a four-year-old? Or the fact that you've uh, never learned to float in water? Or that you can't kick a soccer ball into an open net. But anyway, so I am with you on this very dubious, it's all for the best stuff, though. And um, so was Voltaire. But I think that before I get into some details, I should maybe give some very quick context here. Okay, so what Voltaire is doing in the novel, Candide, is he's satirizing the sort of happy, optimistic rationalism of one of the main characters there. Dr. Pangloss. So, now what do I mean by that? Well, what Dr. Pangloss fervently believes is that this world of ours, created and designed by God, is the best of all possible worlds, and so that whatever happens, however terrible it might seem, is really for the best. Now, here's the thing. The main target of Voltaire's satire is actually the philosopher Leibniz whose view is the one Pangloss is made to express. Um, the bottom line is that Voltaire disagreed with Leibniz's, let's call it, um, optimistic theodicy. That's to say, he disagreed with his view that our existing world is the best world that God could have created. Oh, and um, actually, I should mention that if you're interested in the specifics of Leibniz's philosophical argument here, this idea of the, the best of all possible worlds, then you might want to check out an episode we did on just that a few months ago. It's in that once-a-month feature we call the top philosophy quotes of all time. Okay, that said, let's get started. So, Pangloss's philosophical position in the novel is basically something like this. What he's saying is that the world doesn't have to be a terrible place, even if it happens to be really, really bad for, for me or for you. So the idea here would be that what is bad for me is actually, in the big picture, good for the general arrangement of things. So I could be living in a veil of tears, but really what I don't see is that ultimately everything is for the best. As the English poet Alexander Pope said in his The Essay on Man, All discord is harmony not understood. All partial evil is universal good. Actually, you know, Candide quotes Dr. Pangloss about just this sort of idea, and it takes the form of an aesthetic analogy. He says this, he says, The ills of the world are but the shadows in a beautiful painting. And um, 
Actually, Voltaire himself is basically getting this from the, the great optimist Leibniz that I mentioned, who claimed that, quote, shadows bring out the colors, end of quote. Now, what are we to make of this, this analogy with shadows? I mean, in a way, at least when it comes to a work of art, this makes some sense. In a painting, the light and the dark require each other, and they play off one another to form an overall beautiful image. But ultimately, the problem with this is that at the level of real life, it's not shadows that we're talking about, is it? No, it's blood-soaked stains. Life is just not an artwork, despite the many comparisons we might draw between them. The contrast between light and shadow and life and death, are two very, very different ones. Anyway, all this said, I think what really bothered Voltaire about Pangloss's or Leibniz's optimism, or theory that everything's for the best, despite all the personal atrocities, was not that it was completely unreasonable, but it was that it cultivated a heartlessness in people. It made them less sympathetic, more indifferent to the tragedies of others. I mean, for those of us who point out the ways in which the world is not the best, at least in doing so, we are acknowledging the pain and suffering of others, right? Well, not so, it seems, for those who can't imagine anything being better than it is. So, that was one criticism Voltaire had. Another one was that this sort of all-is-for-the-best attitude made people more apathetic and less active. It made them more resistant to make changes and to improve things. And that's not surprising. I mean, when you believe that certain tragedies are not only unavoidable, but necessary, then you're obviously less likely to believe that you can or should do something to prevent them. I mean, why strive to improve the world if it's already perfect? This is what was fundamentally wrong with Leibniz's view. It was a cold philosophical system that tried to demonstrate why human suffering is necessary and because of this, not something that we need to get too upset over. In other words, indifference and complacency becomes the consequence of necessity. When I'm not stuffed into the tiny box that we record in, I can most often be found stuffed into my tiny apartment. I think I've described the view from my window, a view dominated by industrial-sized garbage containers. So getting to the end of Voltaire's Candide, I got a bit angry. Oh yeah, Voltaire, if that is your real name, where exactly am I supposed to plant, never mind cultivate my own garden? I felt shamed by this dead man's privilege. But rage-filled hours extended into just fuming days. But after a while, I was, uh, I was struck by a thought. Oh, wait. Maybe he meant it like symbolically, like a metaphor or something. Could this be true? Is there something I missed? Should I delete the hateful edits I did to Voltaire's Wikipedia page? Now, I know that you're lying about this. Since uh, you can't edit anything. And um, I'm afraid that you might be the one exception to Voltaire's advice to cultivate your garden. 
I mean, surely if there's one place where a garden can't be cultivated, even symbolically, it's in that hole in the wall that you call your home. But anyway, for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, let me briefly explain. So, at the end of the novel, what happens is that Candide and Pangloss find themselves in Turkey, after having traveled around the world and, and suffered immensely, of course. And they come across an old man who's sitting peacefully under a tree by his house. Now, what the old man tells them is that he has no interest in getting involved with the affairs of the world. Instead, all he wants to do is to cultivate his little garden. Now, Candide takes this to heart, turns to Pangloss, and says, We too must cultivate our garden. Okay, so what does this ending mean? What does Voltaire mean when he tells us that we have to cultivate our garden? Well, obviously there are countless interpretations out there. And so, hey, it can't hurt to add another one, right? So, to be honest, the first thing that comes to my mind when I read that line is that Voltaire is in part drawing an allusion to Epicurus's garden. Now, what was that? Well, Epicurus's garden, established around 300 BC, was a philosophical school and a society of friends whose sole pursuit was the achievement of tranquility or peace of mind. That's to say, the Epicureans weren't interested in trying to answer the big questions about the nature and the meaning of the cosmos. No, the only questions that they pursued were the ones that were relevant to the attainment of this personal tranquility. In other words, for them, the only point of doing philosophy was to promote this one end. And if something didn't promote it, then there was no point studying it. So, Basically, you could say that philosophy had a strictly utilitarian purpose. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, the Buddha was very similar. He also valued a kind of pragmatism and discouraged all metaphysical speculation that wasn't conducive to, to virtue or mental hygiene. Anyway, okay, so what does this have to do with this line in Candide, that we must um, cultivate our garden? Well, first of all, I think that what Voltaire is expressing and counseling here is a kind of Epicurean retirement from the troubles of the larger world. I mean, apparently, Voltaire was a, was a great admirer of the country. You know, places free from the hustle and bustle and the dangers of city life. And to keep a distance between ourselves and the world of public opinion and ambition can be very helpful. But it's not just this, of course. More interestingly, I think that what he's also expressing, not unlike Epicurus, is the, well, is the abandonment of trying to solve life's mysteries by metaphysical or philosophical speculation. It's the suggestion not to seek answers to questions that can have none, especially answers to those questions having to do with natural evil and suffering. You see, I think what Voltaire is reacting to are grand philosophical systems. Remember that Pangloss is a teacher of metaphysico-theologico-cosmoluniology. Anyway, more specifically, as I mentioned at the outset, what Voltaire is reacting to is the philosopher Leibniz's philosophical system, 
one that claims that the reason for evil can be known and it can be justified or made sense of. A system, in other words, that makes suffering explicable. For Voltaire, not only can natural evil not be known or made sense of, but to think it can, to um, rationalize tragedy, to engage in theodicy, is vain and deeply morally suspect, as I discussed earlier. No, the bottom line seems to be that this sort of philosophical speculation is an attempt to solve the insoluble. And so, the best response is to stay silent and instead focus on what we can know and what we have some control over. So, I think something like this is what Voltaire is partly expressing in that line, that we must cultivate our garden. Okay, but I said just now that he means for us to focus on what we can know and what we have some control over. Now, this is important, and it leads me to what I think is the second part of his meaning. Yes, he's getting us to give up on um, grand philosophical speculation. But in its place, what he's asking us to do is to, is to get to work and to try to solve life's actual practical problems, especially as they concern those in our own little local corners of the world. There's a time to be silent and to admit humility. And there's a time to take action and to do what we can to make a positive difference. And, um... Think about it. To cultivate a garden is to do just this. It's to carefully tend to the soil and to make better the environment. It's to make something beautiful come into existence that wasn't there beforehand. Now, I mentioned natural evil before. That's the kind of evil that's not of our own doing. You know, like uh, earthquakes and tsunamis. And um, I mention earthquakes for a reason. And that's because what partly inspired Voltaire to write Candide was the actual occurrence of a massive earthquake that struck Lisbon in 1755, where over 30,000 people were killed. It was a, a wholesale slaughter. And to make matters more questionable, it happened in a Catholic city on the day of a holy festival. Anyway, as I said earlier, Voltaire unlike Leibniz, doesn't think that this sort of evil can be rationalized or made sense of by being made to seem necessary. All is not for the best. You don't explain suffering with reference to a larger plan or history. It's perverse to think so. No, for Voltaire, the best response to natural evil is to simply bow our heads and mourn for its victims, to hope for better things to come, and ultimately to acknowledge the incapacity of reason to make sense of such tragedies. Ultimately, to see mangled bodies and the cries of children is enough by itself to prove philosophy vain and empty. Anyway, okay, well, that's natural evil. But I don't think the same goes for, for moral or social evil. And um, moral or social evil, by the way refers to the willful acts of human beings. So here, I think Voltaire takes the view that, that such evil, unlike natural evil, is both knowable and controllable. It's something that we can um, do something about. So, and here's the point. When he tells us that we must cultivate our garden, 
He's ultimately telling us to stop all our windy theorizing and instead to do what we can, to work incrementally to alleviate social evil. He's telling us to to stop our utopianizing and make actual improvements. He's telling us to stop our rationalizing and just get to work. He's telling us to remove ourselves from the centers of corruption and to work concretely at our appointed task toward the diminution of injustices. At the end of the day, it's a simple message. Through practical action, through the gradual weeding and the pruning and the cultivation of the garden, few as those acres may be, we can slowly begin to grow the fruits of a better world. To the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Education. Education.